Thanks, Kelly, um, and welcome everybody. Good to good to see you all. Thanks for attending. Um, uh, Lydia and my session on uh, more funding for energy assistance. We're going to walk you through what the program looks like uh, for this year for the LIHEAP season uh, and give a, a number of other kind of updates and advocacy tips. If you do have questions, just a reminder to put in the chat. We'll try to respond as we go and then uh, we'll answer some questions um, uh, through the, the webinar as well and if we have time at the end, uh, of course. So uh, without further ado, uh, just want to go over and remind folks who we are. Uh, so the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project um, is a statewide specialty legal services program within the network. Um, we provide technical assistance to other uh, uh, lawyers across the field. Uh, and so when you have utility cases or questions about utility issues, you can always feel free to reach out. If you're not connected with the plan utility listserv, please do make sure you sign up for that. So you can, um, you know, ask questions through the listserv, but you can always reach out to us. Um, pulp uh, in, in the rest of our work, we represent uh, low income consumers uh, in statewide proceedings. And uh, we do some direct representation of individuals as well. Um, and then we provide things like technical assistance and, and training across the field. Um, let me turn it to uh, Lydia to talk about CLS a little bit. Sure. Um, community Legal Services. Um, uh, I am an attorney in uh, the Energy Unit and the Health and Independence Unit CLS. Um, uh, the energy unit provides direct representation of low-income Philadelphia families and organizations um, to ensure access to utility service at affordable rates and improve um, affordability policy at local, state, and national uh, level. Um, and in the health and independence unit, uh, we represent Philadelphians in accessing public benefits, including LIHEAP, cash assistance, medical food stamps, um, long-term care, um, and, and the like. Um, and so I sit sort of at the intersection of those two uh, units, um, which is good for the topic today. We work really closely together on statewide issues. And so, you know, the other thing I'll just mention, and then we'll jump into the topic for today, um, is that it, when you're seeing utility issues, um, the local legal services programs serve as a frontline defense for us to understand um, and be able to push on systemic issues affecting the ability to uh, access and maintain utility service. So, uh, you know, we're always looking for advocates to tell us what's happening in the field. So let me turn it over to uh, Lydia to, to uh, take us through. Okay. Um, so we're going to go through um, uh, a program overview, um, sort of generally, and then we'll get into some of the special issues with LIHEAP and appeals and how to advocate for LIHEAP and, and sort of some of their upcoming resources. Um, so introduction to LIHEAP. What is LIHEAP? Uh, many of you probably know what LIHEAP is, but um, it's a federally funded program administered in Pennsylvania by the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services. Um, to assist low-income customers to pay for home heat or home heat-related service, okay? Um, and uh, LIHEAP is a block grant program. Um, uh, so that means that uh, unlike some other public benefits programs, um, there's sort of a set limited amount of money uh, that DHS gets to administer the program. So why is this year different? Um, 
the next slide. Um, so this year is really different because we have all this funding come through, coming through for the pandemic, um, including for LIHEAP, right? Um, we're seeing that sort of in a lot of programs and LIHEAP is definitely in the mix. As I said, each year, um, DHS gets a certain sort of set amount of money. Um, in the spring, the American Rescue Plan Act authorized a large chunk of supplemental funds, recognizing that um, along with paying rent and um, affording food and all the other things, we're seeing sort of bumps in assistance. People are having difficulty keeping up with their utility bills. And um, while there was a moratorium in Pennsylvania for much of the pandemic on um, sort of regulated utility shutoffs through the PUC, that ended in the spring and the American Rescue Plan authorized a very large amount of money for supplemental funding and Pennsylvania um, received approximately $290 million in this funding. This is huge um, because uh, a typical life season has about 200 million. So this, this sort of allocation of supplemental funding is, is significantly more than we would have for just one typical life season. Um, and there was a lot of advocacy over the summer about how DHS should spend that money. And, and where they landed was they spent well, I don't know how much they actually spent at this point, but they estimated they were going to spend about 40 million um, to support supplemental grants. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and, um, uh, and, and a crisis program sort of before the season started. Um, and then they were just allocated the rest of, of the money, which is about 250 million to this upcoming lighting season. So to put that in perspective, DHS has about $450 million for the upcoming LIHEAP season. In a typical year, DHS has $200 million. So it's in, it's an extremely significant increase. And um, we'll talk about why that means this, this year it's going to look different. So how is DHS spending the money in the next slide? Um, they, they, so they operate a preseason supplemental program. They're extending the LIHEAP season. It's starting early and ending later than usual, um, starting October 18th and going through March 6th as sort of a baseline. There's always possibility that it may be extended or closed early, but this is sort of where they're starting. And actually, uh -huh. Lydia, I just noticed we put March, but meant May. Oh. So May 6th, we'll, we'll fix that in March the, 6th. the PowerPoint. Um, um, but yeah, uh, May 6th, which is yeah. wonderful. Thank you, Liz. And typically, LIHEAP in, so traditionally, LIHEAP has sort of ended um, in very early April. Due to a lot of advocacy from people on this call and, and Pulp and CLS, we've sort of been getting them to extend it incrementally. And so lately, it's been going through about mid-April. Um, now it's going to go through May 6th. This is critical because um, the moratorium on shutoffs ends March, uh, the end of March. And so we see a lot of people getting shutoff notices in April. And so extending this into early May is going to help a lot of those folks uh, get crisis. Um, so what this means sort of generally is that LIHEAP, when you're seeing people with utility issues um, this fall, LIHEAP is going to be there as sort of first stop for, not everybody's gonna qualify, but first stop as a resource for folks. Um, so we're really excited about the possibility that LIHEAP is gonna be an answer for a lot of people who are dealing with energy insecurity in the fall. So um, just to go through each of these things, the, um, 
The supplemental program um, has already happened, but we'll tell you about it in case you're hearing from it from your clients. Um, what DHS decided to do was send um, supplemental grants out, not to, not to everyone, um, but to a particular household. So they sent $250 grants to LIHEAP, to, to households who received LIHEAP last season. So you had to have gotten LIHEAP last season and you're deemed vulnerable um, by DHS. And what does that mean? That means you have a household member that includes either a child under the age of five, an older adult over the age of 60, or a person with a disability. And they define disability fairly broadly. You know, if they know that you get SSI or SSD, or if they know that you get medical assistance in a disability related category, but they have to sort of be aware that there's a disability in the household, right? Um, and all, those households should have already received $250 grants um, directly to the utility and, and received a notice in the mail that, that they were going there. And I, that, that those happened in late August, early September. And I do know that clients did get notices about that. So you may have heard about that from your clients. Um, additionally, for supplemental grants, they're sending uh, deliverable fuel grants, $200 grants issued to households um, with de deliverable fuel that received a LIHEAP grant during the last season, 2020-2021 season. And those grants will be paid on um, October 1st. Um, and will be sent directly to the fuel vendor. So we'll go through this when we talk in more detail about LIHEAP, but mo the, you know, the majority of LIHEAP grants do go sort of directly to the vendors. Um, the other thing that has been happening behind the scenes um, and is a, a little bit of a, a black box, unfortunately, is this utility file transfer program. Um, so what this is, is DHS work directly with utilities and ask the utilities to identify households, you know, before the LIHEAP season started, okay, so this is in August and September, um, identify households who are at risk of shutoff, okay, and who received LIHEAP this past season. The utility was supposed to identify these households, give them a call, say, hey, I will, I'll, you know, you could qualify for this crisis grant, I'll, we'll apply for it for you, would you consent to that? The household consents, and the utility, um, uh, can send this list to DHS and, and be paid directly to prevent those shutoffs. Um, this closed September 17th. Um, it, uh, it's sometimes, you know, this is something that DHS does at different points. It typically also does a program like this um, as we're coming out of winter in, in February. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to tell what's going on because we, we hear from clients, oh, the utility called me or, oh, I got a grant. Sometimes clients don't know they got this grant, you know, but these were grants up to $1,200 to prevent a shutoff. The other thing about this is it's sort of up to the utility how, how, how hard they want to work on this program, and it varies across the state. So where you are, maybe the utility didn't really engage in this and people didn't re really receive these grants. We don't, we don't really know what happened. I know in Philadelphia, we've heard from clients who, who receive these calls and receive these grants, but um, that program's also now over. But the idea was that through that program, they could sort of prevent some crises before the season started with all this money that they have. Um, so that's sort of what already happened. And now we're sort of headed into the upcoming season that starts on um, October 18th. Uh, so this has a correct, <laughs> um, October 18th, the program's going to open. 
Um, the huge big things to know are, first of all, it's opening October 18th. That's really great. Typically, the program opens November 1st. You might want to advertise this to your clients. Clients who are familiar with LIHEAP typically know that it, it opens November 1st. So this is an early start. And for folks who have shutoff notices, um, you know, these few weeks may make a big difference. Um, the other thing I'll say about the season open date is you may be aware LIHEAP does send um, preseason applications to people who received LIHEAP last season. And those folks, they'll either get a postcard or a full application. And can, those folks can actually apply now. And um, DHS is accepting those applications and can get approved for a cash grant, you know, um, now. So that's happening now, but starting October 18th, the season will begin. And the big, big flashy news this season is that the grants are increased. So um, the minimum cash grant is $500, uh, which is a big increase. Uh, it was previously $200. And we end up, we see a lot of people who hover around the minimum. So this sort of increase of the minimum is really big for people. The, the, the maximum is also increased to $1,500. And um, they also made a slight change in how they calculate the amount that you get along this spectrum of $500 to $1,500. So that should also bump everybody up about $50 or so, right? So if somebody's used to always getting $250, this year they might see a little bit of an increase. Of course, they'll see the increase to 500, but then even beyond that, um, above the minimum, they might see an increase because of the way that they change the grant calculations. Okay. Um, so that was all part of, we have extra money. Let's like increase how we're getting this money out the door. Um, the crisis grant, the maximum is also increased. Typically we see a $600 crisis maximum. Last season they had more money and they had an $800 maximum. Now they're going up to, um, uh, and I see a question about whether the change in calculating the cash benefit is in the state plan. It is not in the state plan. Um, the uh, cash grant uh, calculation is also one of those things that is like kind of a mystery to all of us advocates. And they have shared this with the Life Advisory Committee. And if somebody's really interested in that, like Liz or I could share that with you and go through that with you. Um, but they basically increased the, the base amount, which is kind of meaningless. And I don't want to get into like a whole like rabbit hole on it. Um, but I think we'd be happy to talk more with you. But the, the, the formula is based on region, type of fuel, and there's this sort of base amount. So they increase that so that the grant amount will go up for everyone. Um, so, and not just people who have a certain type of fuel or certain, live in a certain area. Um, but it's like a little complicated and I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, so as I was saying, the crisis grant uh, is, the max is increased to uh, $1,200. So um, that's amazing. That means people with higher bills are gonna be able to access LightHeap, right? We'll get into what crisis is, but like this is gonna increase people's access to the program because a cash grant and a crisis grant, you know, you're getting upwards towards $2,000 um, if you're at the maximum, um, which is huge. It's a huge difference. It's very significant. Um, so these are sort of the components of the program, the grant increases, and then there's also the crisis interface program, which does um, repair and replace of inoperable heaters. 
Um, so how to apply? Um, apply online. You can always do that. LIHEAP um, is kind of special in this area in that LIHEAP applications, they will do sort of a, a, a real-time eligibility determination if they have all the info they need. So that's sometimes a good way to do it online if, if a client has access. Um, and we included the website there on Compass. Um, CAOs are open. I don't know if everybody knows this. I, the DHS has not been sort of advertising it, um, but clients can go in and submit their applications at the local county assistance office. They can go in and submit their documentation face-to-face, -face, especially folks who, have, who don't have internet access or have difficulty using the Compass app. It's not super easy, or the Compass website. It's not super easy to use. Um, uh, so folks can go in in person. They do sell the drop boxes. If people don't want to like interact in person in the office, they can still drop stuff at the drop boxes. Um, and then I mentioned the early application. The only extra thing I'll say about this is that folks who received a postcard for the early application, there's a code on there. Um, so that is just um, supposed to be used for the, the Compass website. And you have to kind of go into the website and enter that code to access your application. And that's really critical because some people go in and they, they get the postcard and they say, oh, I'll just go apply on Compass like I always apply on Compass. But that's actually not how it works. You have to enter this code to access your special life application. We've seen a lot of confusion with clients about that. Um, uh, so that's how to apply. And of course, there's always the LIHEAP hotline, which is available. Um, for crisis and you know if you want an application uh, mailed to you and just you know a tip for everyone I'm sure you guys have heard this before if you're submitting an app, a paper application you know make sure to get a receipt if you're doing it in person make a copy just have some proof that, that you submitted it for you know, future advocacy if needed um, and then one last thing before I turn it over to Liz is the processing times for applications. Um, and that's the next slide. Uh, cash grants um, must be processed within 30 days um, from the date of the application. Um, and crisis grants. Um, uh, so the, the federal rules say that crisis grants must be processed within 48 hours, um, that a completed application is accepted. Um, or 18 hours when there's a life-threatening emergency. DHS has a little bit of a different policy, um, so it's important that you know it. Um, they, they designate 18 hours um, for households who are without heat or will be without heat in 48 hours and have a life-threatening situation, right? So if there's some, some life-threatening situation, um, they'll do it within 18 hours. Um, within 48 hours, if the households are without heat, or will be without heat within 48 hours. So they're only using that 48 hour processing time when somebody's already off or is gonna be off within 48 hours. Um, for most people, we're seeing them use the 10 working days um, or before the household is without heat. So it kind of depends when the household will be without heat, um, but you'll see that, it, that many applications are not being processed within 48 hours. Um, and, and when there's a, at the very beginning of the season, when there's a lot of people applying for crisis, we'll sometimes see those processing times being extended. And that's sort of a reason for appeal and uh, advocacy. And, and we'll talk about that a little later.
I'm going to turn it over to Liz to talk about cash grants. If I could just interrupt before you, Liz, this is Kelly, and I'm going to launch the first of these two CLE poll boxes. You'll have two minutes to respond, and you must respond to both poll questions, attorneys, in order to receive credit. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Kelly, and th thanks, Lydia. Uh, get those credits, everyone. Um, uh, I'm going to walk us through some of the details on cash grants, uh, what the rules are, and how to access them. Um, the first thing is uh, income guidelines, 150% of the poverty level still has been the case for a very long time, is still the case. Um, a couple of things about income, it includes annual income of all household members. Um, and so I'll talk in just a moment about uh, the definition of household member for LIHEAP, which is a little different uh, than some of the other public benefits programs. Uh, the, how uh, income is calculated is uh, can be two different ways. And this will be really important for clients, especially uh, those who were out of work for periods of time. They may be back to work, um, but their last 12 months of income may be much lower than what their last uh, uh, month of income prior to application. It is uh, supposed to be whichever is most beneficial, uh, but we know that county assistance office don't necessarily do a great job of telling people uh, of the option. So, uh, you know, if you have clients coming before you that may have been out of work uh, and are back to work, definitely um, help them figure out which is most beneficial. Um, and there is a question, can LIHEAP be used to get electric space heaters if there's no central heating system? Hold that thought. We'll get to that in just a minute about heating responsibility. Uh, the, the last piece I'll say is to always check the income exclusions. Um, and I'll say this because, and I think we have a slide and a couple slides from here that shows some of the income exclusions. We had an interesting case uh, last, last heating season uh, where a home health worker who happened to be a household uh, a family member, but was being paid for the care of his grandfather, was counted in the household. Um, but he was actually paid for that care. So he was considered a live-in uh, uh, home care worker, and his income was excluded on appeal, but included um, to begin with. So, you know, you can really get some great benefits if you pay attention to what's included or excluded uh, for income. So just a note uh, about uh, who a household member is, uh, it would be any related roomers uh, who are living together as one economic unit and customarily pay for energy costs together. Um, and, you know, I'll note here and we'll underscore this later, it is uh, directly or indirectly as an uh, as a part of rent, those are, would be included uh, in uh, lie heap as well. So we'll talk about that in a moment too. But as far as uh, who's included in your household, if you have unrelated rumors, they're not going to be included in that household. Um, but if they are paying rent to the, to the applicant, that may count as income. So um, a couple of tricky things to watch out for there. Uh, what's included and excluded, here's the sites to where you can find the lists, but again, I'll just note, you know, make sure you, you pay attention to that. The other thing is that stimulus payments, uh, so any of the benefits that were received through the pandemic, uh, not going to count as income for LIHEAP. So um, the, the pandemic 
unemployment did count and does count as income, um, but none of the stimulus payments. And I believe we clarified, and Lydia, correct me if I'm wrong, that the childcare uh, stimulus payments are not going to count as income either. Um, child tax credit? Child tax credit, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, some, you know, again, some, some things to watch out for if you have clients close to the line for eligibility. Um, so income is the first requirement. The second requirement is a home heating responsibility. And so this gets a little tricky. Let me see if I can walk you through it. And this should answer Rose's question. Uh, so in order to have a home heating responsibility, you have to be responsible for either the primary heat source, either directly or through rent, um, or you need to be responsible for the supplemental heating source, um, uh, which would be your electric space heaters. Um, if heat is paid through rent, so let me go back to that first, if you're responsible for your primary heating source, this would be the thing that heats your house, be the, the type of furnace you have. So gas, electric, um, or a deliverable fuel like wood or coal um, or propane. If you pay your landlord uh, through rent, right, and it's a designated portion of your rent, so say your lease says you pay $200, um, that would be designated, you'd be able to receive a regular sized LIHEAP grant. If you pay for heat through rent, and it is undesignated portion of your rent, just heat is an included service, you can still get a LIHEAP grant, but it will only be 50% of the amount that you would normally receive. And this is a piece that we've been pushing and advocating for for several years, and DHS has begun to indicate uh, that they may change this rule next year. They actually recently acknowledged that it is not based on any reasonable, uh, it's just one of those, well, it's always been that way. So um, we've been pushing on them uh, to change that. And we think we have a real shot at getting it changed next year. But for this year, it remains the rule. Um, now, the other piece of this is uh, secondary heat. And secondary heat would be the type of heat that or the, the type of energy that's used to power your heating source. So that would be, for instance, if you have an oil furnace and you need electricity in order for that oil furnace to work, um, that would be your secondary heating source. And in order to get a LIHEAP grant for your secondary heating source, you must be responsible for paying the primary heating source, but you can direct the grant to go to your secondary heating source. I hope that clears up the primary, secondary, and supplemental. That might be one of the trickiest uh, pieces of LIHEAP. And if you ever have questions about it, do drop us a line. Um, the last main requirement for uh, LIHEAP is that you be a Pennsylvania resident. Um, it, it does not matter how long you've lived in Pennsylvania. We've seen every year some rejections um, for LIHEAP because somebody's only lived in Pennsylvania a couple of months. Not the rule, never has been the rule. Uh, you just have to live here and intend to stay. Uh, college students may, may be eligible uh, if they're in an apartment uh, year round um, uh, and the bill's not paid by a third party. And then people living in RVs and campers, if that RV or camper is permanently located in Pennsylvania um, and they don't have another permanent residence, they may be able to get LIHEAP for the RV or camper. Um, 
So I just want to sum up a couple of things. Uh, a, to receive a cash grant, you do not have to have a pending termination. You do not uh, have to have an outstanding debt uh, to the utility or to the vendor, and you don't need to have a direct relationship and an account with the utility and energy vendor. Uh, household also, uh, just to remind you all, you can receive LIHEAP every year and you have to apply in order to receive it. So uh, just a couple of things to underscore there with cash grants. Um, and I'm gonna turn it over to Lydia to talk us through the crisis components. Thanks. Um, so crisis is a grant to assist households um, without heat or in imminent danger of being without heat. Um, as I said before, they uh, the grants range this year from $25 to $1,200. Um, so the eligibility uh, rules for crisis uh, look a lot like cash with some important differences. Um, household income uh, are going to be the same as cash, as Liz already talked about. Uh, heating responsibility is a little different going back to primary, secondary, or supplemental. To get a crisis grant, um, you have to be responsible for primary, secondary, or supplemental. Okay, so there's a difference there. Cash grant, you have to have a responsibility for primary or supplemental. Uh, for crisis, it you can also have a responsibility for secondary. So if you only have a responsibility for the secondary heating source, you can still get a crisis grant, even though you might not be eligible for cash grant um, for heating responsibility reasons. Um, and then Pennsylvania uh, residency is also gonna look the same. Um, the big added uh, eligibility piece here is that to get crisis, you have to have a home heating emergency. So what is a home heating emergency? Um, actual or be an actual or imminent home heating emergency when a household is shut off um, uh, or has zero, uh, has no deliverable fuel, right? Just like totally without heat. Um, has received a termination notice um, and uh, that is good for 60 days. So a termination notice like within the last 60 days or has 15 days or less of deliverable fuel. Um, and importantly, the crisis must be resolvable by the grant. So, um, so a utility has to accept the crisis grant to resolve the crisis. Um, utilities will accept a grant depending on sort of the amount that is lower than the amount they're saying they need from the client sometimes. So just to illustrate this as, with an example is um, if a person owes $2,000 and the utility is telling them you have to pay $2,000 to get your, uh, to keep your electric on or keep your gas on, sometimes the utility will accept a crisis grant that's less than that $2,000, even though they're telling the client you need $2,000 to get this back on. Um, so, so, uh, so clients should ask, right? And even more important this year because the grants are bigger, right? So in Philadelphia, we have um, PICO and PGW that every year sort of designate um, bill thresholds, meaning, um, you know, typically PICO might say, if your total bill is less than $3,500, we will accept a crisis grant uh, to resolve 
to resolve the crisis, even though crisis grant may only be $600. This year in Philadelphia, PICO is saying, if your bill is below $5,000, we'll accept a crisis grant because the grants are much higher. So um, it's definitely worth asking. Um, and I don't know what shelters across the state do, uh, but that's how it works in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, this year, even more, because people can get up to two, almost $2,000 um, to resolve. And I'm just, I was scrambling for my mute button, but it, it, there, there isn't designated thresholds at most utilities across the state. But if you need a contact at the local utility with somebody who can make that decision, right, don't call into the local service line. Send us an email and we'll connect you to the right person to be able to reach out and make that request. Um, because, you know, if you just call the 800 number for the utility, you're going to be lost. You're going to talk to somebody uh, possibly in Pennsylvania, possibly in another state who may not know what you're talking about. So um, do reach out to us and we'll connect you to the right people. Uh, that's great. And just to put a point on this, you know, at CLS, we see clients every year who have high bills for, and the utility will not accept a crisis grant. Um, even though they're eligible, uh, their, their bill might be $6,000 and the utility says, nope, it's not enough. Um, and so that is an important eligibility component is that the utility has to accept it to resolve the crisis. So this year, I think we're going to be seeing people with higher bills getting access to crisis, which is really great. Um, and just a note, crisis funds can be used to pay for late fees, um, reconnection fees, and reasonable delivery fees. Um, they may not be used for security deposits, um, if that's what somebody needs. Um, we don't see that as a huge issue because um, the bigger rules around low-income folks, but just so folks know. Um, crisis interface, okay? So this is the part of the program that um, is assistance for help for households who need to repair or replace an operable or inadequate heating system. Uh, and, um, you know, it's also run through the LIHEAP offices, um, uh, and you use the life application. It's just a little bit of a different program. Um, and the available benefits, they can repair heating systems, um, repair fuel lines, replace un unrepairable heating systems, repair hot water. Um, you know, everything's listed here. Uh, there's a lot that can be done here, um, but there are a few um, eligibility components that you should be aware of. Um, some of them, again, line up with the other LIHE programs, household income, heating responsibility, Pennsylvania residency. Um, uh, the big piece here is that the heating system that needs to be repaired or replaced must have been operable when the applicant moved in and must have been operable within the last two heating seasons. So sometimes we get clients coming to the energy unit at CLS who haven't had operable heating in a really long time. Um, and we're not able to get them help through this program. Um, landlord permission and agreement not to evict and increase rent for a reasonable time. Okay, so, so tenants will need la landlord permission um, to access these, these benefits. Um, but the crisis interface program also has more money this year. So we're hoping to see more repairs and replacements being done. Um, and they're also running a new program, which Liz will talk a little bit about.
Thanks, Lydia. Um, a reminder for everybody, do put questions in the chat if you've got them, um, and we'll try to answer them as we go. Um, and I just want to circle back because I'm not sure I was totally clear in response to Rose's question. Um, but yes, if you have an electric space heater and no primary heating system, um, the electric space heaters would be your supplemental heat. So yes, you would be eligible for both cash and as Lydia explained, crisis. Um, but back to uh, the uh, additional money coming through, uh, LIHEAP meant higher uh, money for the uh, crisis interface program um, and additional funds that get transferred for the weatherization assistance program, which if you want more information about the weatherization assistance program, come to our November 2nd webinar um, as part of the plan conference and we'll uh, go through that. Uh, but uh, with this pilot program that they are running, um, it's going to be run through the Department of Community and Economic Development um, and through the weatherization assistance uh, program providers. Uh, so it is connected to the crisis interface program, but it's a little it's a little separate. Um, essentially, uh, they are going to do clean and tunes for furnaces. Clean and tunes are pretty important. They help um, prevent more serious issues happening with your furnace. Now, I have my own furnace uh, clean and tune scheduled for next week. I do it every year. Um, it reduces your energy costs. They clean the filters out. They make sure everything is running. And uh, because this program is connected with the crisis interface program and the weatherization program, uh, if, you're, if that household is eligible then for other energy efficiency, usage reduction services, um, or you know repairs, uh, they would be able to do a lot of that work while they're there. Um, so it should be a very good kind of preventative program. Um, and certainly if you are seeing anybody with high heating costs or really, uh, you know, any of your clients, this could be a really good program to help them reduce their usage through winter. Um, so we're going to cover a couple of special uh, LIHEAP issues that come up um, and we want you to be aware of. Uh, so the first is, and, and Lydia talked about this in the beginning a little bit, the intersection of the winter moratorium and uh, LIHEAP. And so uh, every year, uh, December 1st, the winter moratorium goes into place. And I see that we need to get better at updating our dates, um, but the uh, winter moratorium will run December December 1st, 2021 through March 31st, 2022 uh, for regulated electric and natural gas companies. It also applies to heat-related water service, but not all water service. So if somebody has a private water company and they rely on heat or water in order to heat their home. So for instance, I'll go to to myself again, as an example, I have uh, oil furnace, so uh, and that requires water to run through the radiators in order to heat my home. So I have heat-related water service. Um, all of those instances are are prohibited from terminating you in the winter if your income is at or below two hundred. 50% of the poverty guidelines. In Philadelphia, that's a little bit higher at 250% of the poverty guidelines. Um, I will say some of the water companies, uh, particularly the private ones, have begun to um, uh, 
just apply the winter moratorium across the board, um, but not all of them. Um, and then we have about 1,200 unregulated water companies in Pennsylvania, and the, the winter moratorium does not apply to any of those. It also does not apply to uh, a couple of uh, uh, municipal cooperatives across the state. So that would be there's one in Ephrata, there's Claverack up in, in the Scranton area, there's a couple out west, I think there's 12 statewide. Um, uh, the intersection with this is that in, in winter, um, if you can't be shut off, you're not in imminent risk of termination, um, right? So termination notices issued by a regulated utility during the winter moratorium are not going to form the basis of a crisis. Um, there is an exception that DHS typically implements every February to allow any termination notices issued on or after February 1st to begin to form the basis for a crisis grant. Why? Because uh, termination notices issued by a regulated utility are good for up to 60 days. Um, and so from February 1st, uh, technically they can be acted upon still before the end uh, or at the end of the winter moratorium. So uh, just a little finicky rule there to be uh, aware of. Uh, the next tenant eligibility, and we did touch on this before, but I want to underscore it, um, heat as an undesignated portion of rent. Um, people are still eligible uh, to get a grant. They can get 50% of that grant. In some years, uh, you know, 50% of a cash grant is $100, right? So some households don't find it um, worth their time to go through that application process. Um, this year, with the minimum cash grant being $500, uh, the minimum uh, for somebody with an undesignated portion of rent um, as their heating costs can receive a minimum of $250 grant. So certainly, um, you know, encouraging your clients to apply whether or not, you know, if they're paying for heat as an included expense in rent. Um, the one exception, and this is important for you all working with public housing recipients, if you're working with a tenant uh, whose rent is based on a percentage of their income, that is the one exception, right? So so if you're dealing with a public housing recipient and they're paying reduced rent based on their income and heat is an included expense, then they wouldn't be eligible for LIHEAP. Um, of course, there are some public utility or public housing recipients whose rent is based on uh, income, um, but they also have a heating responsibility. Those people would still be uh, eligible, of course. Um, again, if heat is a designated portion of your rent and it's specific how much you have to pay um, uh, towards to the landlord for for heat, that would be a designated portion of rent and they would be eligible for the full grant. Um, the grant is not paid to the landlord, it is paid in those instances directly to the tenant. Uh, so there's just a couple of other instances in which a uh, grant would be paid directly to the applicant. One, if the you know heat is paid as an undesignated portion of their rent, it'll go directly to uh, the tenant. Um, if uh, one of the utilities or fuel vendors is not participating in the program, um, either they're not a, a vendor, um, 
or have been had their vendor status removed for some reason, um, they the applicant can still receive that grant directly to them. Um, if the heating bill is in the name of a non-household member, and actually I, I don't really run into this situation much, but um, the last one would be, uh, well, the last two, if the applicant's a rumor or if the bill is paid to a third party, such as uh, uh, in a master metering situation or a sub metering situation um, where somebody, you know, somebody other than the utilities or the vendors are um, uh, that tenant is responsible for paying those third parties. Um, New residents, old balance. So uh, if somebody moves, they can get a LIHEAP grant to reconnect service at a new residence, um, but LIHEAP uh, will only pay up to 50% of the, the prior balance. Um, this is an important piece. And I'll just say, if you're dealing with folks who moved um, and are carrying a balance, need to get reconnected. This is something we work with a lot with utilities. Um, contact Pulp and again, we can connect you with the right person at the utility. It may be that you can work out a deal with the utility to connect for something less than um, you know, the full balance. So uh, the full balance should never be a barrier to somebody reconnecting service. There's uh, almost always a workaround. Um, sometimes it takes a little, a, a little bit of advocacy um, on your part, but that's our job, right? Um, so uh, moving along, this is an important one, especially for uh, those of you who do represent um, undocumented persons. Um, ineligible adults with eligible children or other household members can still apply for LIHEAP. Um, in those instances, the adult's income uh, would uh, not I'm sorry, the adult income get accounts when determining income, but the adult member does not count when determining household size. So the example, and I think we have a, a, a I mean, okay, so the example would be if you have a four person household and two people in that household are uh, documented and um, uh, eligible based on their status and two people are undocumented and ineligible. That would be a still be a four-person household. Um, no, I'm sorry, that would be a two-person household and the income of all four would count towards the determination of eligibility. Sorry about that, even I find that a little tricky sometimes, but uh, again, the household members count um, or do not count for household size, they, they count for income. Uh, there is a list um, of who the eligible non-citizens would include. Um, I, I haven't stayed up to date with public charge rule, but that's a really important piece. It has never applied uh, to LIHEAP. Um, so not a bar, not a barrier should never come into the, the calculation. Um, uh, as far as there's a list there for uh, who would be uh, a non citizen eligible person um, and a link that you can go to the state plan should you need more information about uh, that in particular. Um, you know, anybody, ineligible adults um, or 
those with ineligible household members should still feel confident that they can apply for LIHEAP and get assistance uh, to their home. Heat and eat. Um, I hope everyone stayed, uh, stayed with me through that uh, immigration uh, piece. Um, Heat and Eat is an excellent little program. It essentially allows us to leverage um, SNAP uh, grants and um, uh, get people the full utility uh, allowance um, through, no, I'm sorry. I'm gonna turn it over to Lydia to explain Heat and Eat, who uh, with her intersection of SNAP knows a lot more. What I can say is that the Heat and Eat grants are being issued this week. We just confirmed that with DHS yesterday. Um, so people will see a very small 20 to $25 grant show up on their EBT cards. Um, uh, that is uh, the LIHEAP Heat and Eat. And let me turn it to Lydia to walk us. Yeah, this is something that kind of happens behind the scenes, but I think the important piece to know when we're talking about LIHEAP is how this relates to the, um, like, this mainly is an issue for SNAP, um, but these LIHEAP grants go out and basically DHS has decided that in order to maximize the SNAP standard utility allowance. So for those of you who've worked with people with SNAP, um, know that there's different sort of things that you could factor in to increase your SNAP grant. Um, and one of them is um, a utility allowance uh, to get more SNAP. And so what, um, how DHS does this is they issue a small life grant to all SNAP households that have a responsibility for heating costs. And what that does is um, by doing that, they can, uh, they can um, use the SNAP standard utility allowance for everyone um, who has a, a utility responsibility, who has a heating responsibility. So it basically gets people an increase in their SNAP. Um, the reason that it's helpful to know in the LIHEAP context is some of the LIHEAP budget goes toward this. Um, uh, but in reality, this is just sort of a behind the scenes thing that DHS does in order to maximize SNAP grants for people who have a home heating responsibility. Um, I think that's it. Oh, and that will go right into appeals. Yep. And just a uh, time check, we have about six minutes. So, um, but I think we can still wrap up. I think, well, and the session goes till 1130. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's I, I have it as 11.30, 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. We'll so, have plenty of time then. Hopefully Liz can stay on. And I don't think there's a ton more to say. Um, so we do have time for, we will have time, plenty of time for questions at the end. But we do want to give um, um, as much time as possible to appeals because that's where, you know, we really come in as advocates. People are having difficulty accessing grants. So, um, uh, DHS determinations, as we mentioned earlier, so in the next slide, we have um, uh, DHS will make a determination um, for cash grant has to be within 30 days. If the application is incomplete, they'll send a notice or they're supposed to send a notice within 10 days about what's needed and give 15 days um, to provide the missing information. Um, crisis grants, have to be expedited and we sort of laid out when they're when DHS will make those decisions. Um, 
so uh, folks get decisions and um, we will help them appeal. So let's talk about the appeals process. Um, reasons for appeal. Um, like any other public benefit, applicants have the right to appeal any adverse determination by the CAO. And that includes a failure to act. So common reasons in the LIHEAP context we see appeals are LIHEAP denials, most common, um, low grant amount. So people think that they should be eligible for more. Now I'll just say sort of, there's not much there from what I usually see, um, but that may be a reason for appeal. Um, or delays in crisis processing. Um, we typically see LIHEAP denials and I'll just take a moment here to say that uh, for those of us who've been sort of following LIHEAP for a little while now, there's a, there's a bit of a disturbing trend that rejection rates are just inching up every year. And um, we've been doing sort of uh, advocacy with DHS to really address this um, because we took a deep dive into the data and we, um, uh, back before the pandemic, um, and we discovered that the reason for these what appears to be the reason for these increasing denials is mostly related to paperwork issues. And um, at least in Philadelphia, we see the LIHEAP office being more, a little bit more stringent um, with these requirements, a little bit more rigid than the flexibilities that people are granted in the Medicaid and SNAP context. And I think that has to do with some history in the LIHEAP program, um, it's, you know, the LIHEAP has come a long way, let's put it that way. Um, but what, as a result, what we're seeing is you don't submit this form, you're denied. Um, uh, so, uh, so we'll talk about how to help folks in that context. But I also just want to say delays in crisis is application processing. That's absolutely a reason for appeal. You know, things are moving really quickly with crisis, so you may not you know, have a full-on appeal, but it's a reason to threaten appeal, right? It's a reason to contact the CAO and say, hey, this client applied for crisis two weeks ago. They haven't, their application hasn't been acted on yet. Um, for those of you who've sort of had a community legal services, public benefit training in the past, you know, our, uh, our mantra when it comes to appealing public benefits, denials in Pennsylvania is appeal first, think later. Um, and I, that's true in the life context as well. Submitting an appeal um, will buy you time to resolve the issue. Um, you can submit proof that the welfare office, uh, you can submit the proof that the welfare office wants at any time up until a hearing. So um, getting the appeal in, uh, in, and we'll talk about this on the next slide, but you have 30 days um, in LIHEAP is critical because that will give you time. So say the client was denied because they didn't submit proof of income. That's okay, you can appeal and submit proof of income and submitting that appeal sort of gives you the time to get those documents together and submit it. Um, DHS is required to, to work to settle appeals um, prior to a hearing and can accept documentation that was missing at the time of application to settle an appeal. Um, so, you didn't submit something when you applied, you were denied. Upon appeal, you can submit that missing piece of documentation showing your eligibility at the time of application and um, you can be approved. So uh, appealing is a really useful tool for advocates. Um, another 
piece um, is, you know, the LIHEAP season ends, right? Unlike sort of other benefits, um, LIHEAP this upcoming season is going to go through May 6th. So if somebody is denied um, after that date or even week before or close to that date and they don't have time to sort of reapply within the um, season, they can get their appeal in and resolve whatever issues, if they're resolvable, happen with their um, application. So, um, so appealing is a really useful uh, way to, to resolve LIHEAP issues. Um, as I said before, you have to appeal within 30 days of the date on the notice. So um, you got to sort of act fast, which is why we say appeal first and think like trying to sort out your clients, whether they, what's really going on, whether they have the documents. You can do that after the appeal is submitted. If you realize, hey, this we can't actually pursue this appeal, they're not eligible, you can always withdraw the appeal. But what you can't do most of the time is submit a late appeal. So get the appeal in and then figure out what's going on. Um, you know, there are instances when a late appeal will be accepted if the notice was insufficient, but, um, but that's sort of rare. Um, appeals can be submitted orally or in writing for LIHEAP. Um, there's a form in, in the denial notice that, that most people want to use for an appeal. You can use your own form. You know, the client can write a letter. Um, oral appeals will be accepted. You know, they're less ideal because you don't have proof. There's always this question of whether, you know, you're calling and saying, I appeal, if somebody will actually write it down. Um, so, uh, so writing is probably best. Um, but if the client doesn't have the notice, that's okay. Um, uh, you know, as we said with applications, you want to keep a copy um, and get a receipt for the appeal just to have proof that it's in. Um, so, so what do you do once you appeal? You work to resolve the appeal. Uh, county system staff are motivated to resolve appeals. I feel they're very motivated for LIHEAP. I've never been to a LIHEAP hearing, <laughs> even for some tricky issues. All those appeals have been resolved before a hearing. Um, they're especially motivated to resolve appeals when you ask for an in-person hearing. <laughs> this was true before the pandemic and it's probably even more true now. Um, CAO staff, they don't wanna go to an in-person hearing. Um, they don't really wanna go to a phone hearing. Uh, so they're motivated to call you, call your client, figure out what the issue is and, and resolve it. Um, and so we'd encourage you to work directly with folks at the county assistance office, whoever your contacts are over there, whether they're the caseworker or the supervisors, um, to, to figure out what's needed and to provide it. And generally with public benefits and with dealing with the county assistance office, we advise, you know, not necessarily to say no to what, what they're asking for. If you don't have the document, if the client doesn't have the document they're asking for, think about other ways to provide that verification. Um, right, they don't have pay stubs, right? Can you get a letter from the employer? And if you can't do that, you know, can you, you can absolutely ask the CAO to make a collateral contact, um, call the third party, whether it's an employer or whatever, to find out the information they're looking for, or provide a signed statement from, from the client, and they'll accept those. Um, one piece, which I should have put on the slide that I do want to emphasize is this household composition forum. Um, we see a lot of denials due to a household composition form. This is a form that the CAO requests when you apply for LIHEAP, 
and they believe that there's somebody else living in the household that you didn't list on the application. And so they'll send out this form. Um, this comes up a lot for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that, you know, the LIHEAP household is pretty broad compared to other, um, other benefits. It's basically everybody who's sort of living in the house for the most part. Um, and people don't always consider that to be their household and they're not used to including, right, like a adult cousin who's staying with you but, you know, buys their food separately and is basically their own financial household. Um, but they're, they're living with you. They're not paying rent. They're there. Even if they were paying rent, they're related. Um, you know, they have to be included. And so if the CAO knows they're living there because maybe they're receiving their own food stamps grant at that address, they're going to send the client a letter and say, we know that cousin Joe is living in the house. Like, please confirm who's living in the house. Right now where this gets uh, frustrating is that we see, at least in Philadelphia, and I think across the state, an over overuse of this. And DHS has made progress because we've really been pushing them on training around this issue. But what we have seen in the past is where DHS is sending this form out because they have proof that somebody received another benefit in the household three years ago, right? They know that that, that person is no longer receiving snap right at that household address but they say well they lived with you then maybe they're still living with you now and they're not on your application and we saw that in a very frustrating way because you know multiple years in a row people being asked this or people having received LIHEAP with without this person in the house last season right DHS has reason to believe that this person's not living in the household but they're sitting out this notice anyway and people aren't returning it so um this form, they're asking somebody to sign it, somebody who knows the household to sign about who's living in the household. They used to ask like for a landlord signature. It's different now. They're asking anybody who knows the household. It can really be anybody. Um, and if they can't get that done, again, think of another way to say, okay, this is who's living in the household, even if it's just a statement from the client. There may be some pushback. I've seen them be really stringent about this one form, but I think we can absolutely get over that hump. DHS should be accepting other documentation. And if you're really having pushback on that, please reach out. Uh, we want to know about that. So just look up, be on the lookout for that form. We just have seen it used more and more. The last season, we saw a slight decrease from the, the trend of increasing. And I think that's due to the training that DHS is doing. So that's a good thing. But um, that comes up and it just trips clients up. They're like, oh, shoot. Like maybe I, I didn't say this right, or I don't know what they're talking about. Who is this person? They haven't lived with me. Or, and then they just don't get the grant. So um, just keep an eye out for that form. Uh, and as I said before, most appeals uh, can be resolved prior to the hearing. So, um, so it's just a matter oftentimes of submitting paperwork. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, proving heating responsibility. Um, you know, many times it's most likely related to income or household composition. And Lydia, I, I'll just jump in here to say for the rest of the state um, outside of Philadelphia, I mean, we, we have, and to underscore your point, Pulp has had exactly one LIHEAP appeal go to hearing um, in the last 
you know, eight years that I've been around at Pulp. So, um, you know, it's not common. Um, and, you know, we, we did have that one appeal. In fact, I think I mentioned it earlier. It had to do with whether or not a home care worker's income could be counted as income. And we actually won that appeal. Um, uh, but there were some complicated reasons. I think the county assistance office would have given up on that if we had gotten to them soon enough, but because of some delays and luckily the client had submitted an appeal. So we were able to resolve it through the appeals process, but that's just to underscore the fact that reaching out to the right county assistance um, or LIHEAP director can resolve most issues. And if you need that contact again, um, you know, it will, the list of contacts does go out with our annual um, LIHEAP uh, manual, and we'll be sending that out in mid-October uh, uh, to the network. So th there's a list that we'll include with there with the most recent county assistance office contacts um, uh, if you need it. But if you can't find that, just reach out to Pulp and we'll give you the right people. Um, so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about reapplication because sometimes that may be advantageous. And also like Sometimes county assistance offices will tell you that's what you should do, um, but maybe that's because they don't want to deal with your appeal. <laughs> so, uh, but sometimes it is advantageous. So sometimes it's not best to, to appeal. Sometimes it's best to reapply. And the main situation that I see related to that is if the applicant is over income at the time that they applied previously and their income has has reduced. So as Liz said, when you're looking at income for LIHEAP, you're looking at the month before the month of application or like the 12 month period. Um, so if somebody lost their job, if somebody applies in November and loses their job, um, you know, in November, and then um, it may make sense for them to wait because because LIHEAP unfortunately is not going to say, oh, you just lost your job. They're gonna say, we're gonna look at your income from October or your income from the last year. So sometimes it makes sense to do a new application and they can look at your updated income. Um, uh, and sometimes if uh, somebody is off, there's a very serious crisis, it may go faster to do a new application um, I think that really depends on what's going on at your local office and your contacts there and how advocacy will look and how fast they're getting to applications, right? If somebody's off, they're going to look at an application pretty fast. Um, so that may make sense to do a new application. And that folds into sort of this next rule that I want to talk about, which is reconsideration. So there's reconsideration policies for all, all the benefits. And what that means is if you apply and you're denied, and then you apply again within a certain period of time, you don't have to submit a whole new application. DHS will quote like refresh your previous application. All you have to submit is whatever the hangup was, right? If you didn't submit your income information or you know, you, whatever it is um, that you were denied for, you can just submit that and they're supposed to bring back up your old application and process it as an application. Now in the LIHEAP context, the time period to do that is 60 days after your initial application. 
So for other benefits, this refreshing policy is really useful because sometimes it gives you time after the appeal deadline. The, the deadline for this often aligns with the appeal deadline because, um, so it doesn't really give you a lot of time afterwards, but again, it may be useful if reapplying is sort of the mode here that you, that you should do. You can just sort of say, oh, I was denied. Here's my income. Can you refresh my application and process my, right? And process my application. That may be a faster move, a smarter move if you're off and you were denied for crisis and you really need your crisis approved like today. <laughs> I'll just add on the reconsideration that sometimes you're gonna, if you're getting close to the deadline for or the end of the program, you may wanna have the person reapply and try to get it reconsidered. But if you're after the deadline and Lydia, maybe you know the answer to this question, but I don't think they'll consider a reconsideration um, of a denial if there's not an appeal pending after the, after the program has closed. My understanding is that if the application, I thought that they would. So we should check on that. Since we should. Brent's on understanding there. We should check on it. Um, I'm not 100% we will. sure, yeah. But if yeah. you're anywhere near the end of the deadline, okay, and Caitlin, Wonderful. somebody do it. So, that, so that's good. Um, but I would really like, recommend appealing if you're close to the end of the program because that gives you a lot more time. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, we should check. I think I, I'm pretty sure that we have something on this so we can check on that. But um, so it's a varied. So maybe we need to do some, figure out what the policy says and do some advocacy. It sounds like a great uh, transition to talk about uh, advocacy um, in, in the LIHEAP context. Um, uh, and I'm sorry, Lydia, were you, did you wrap up on the appeals? All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about advocacy. I will say that with all the money coming through the federal government, um, uh, PULP and uh, the CLS's energy unit and others have been working our tails off to try and get all of this money um, into the hands of low-income consumers in the, mo in the quickest and best way. Um, uh, so, uh, Pulp, both, both Lydia and I sit on the uh, LIHEAP Advisory Committee, and um, I've served as chair now since um, taking over for Patrick in January 2020, um, right before the pandemic. Um, so uh, we've been battle tested uh, at the LAC. Um, it uh, is a way for us to monitor spending, to advocate for program improvements and enhancements, and um, uh, gives us a channel directly to DHS policy office to be able to argue for um, improvements through the year, um, uh, to ask hard questions about things like the denial rates that, that Lydia mentioned. Um, we are taking a hard look at it, um, but, you know, and information from you all on what you're seeing and what the barriers are. I cannot stress enough on utility issues. We only have a window into what we see and what we know. So, um, you know, as uh, the local programs um, serving clients uh, day in and day out, you know a lot more about um, necessarily what's happening. I mean, we 
both pulp and CLS do individual representation as well. But, um, you know, we need eyes and ears across the state to tell us when there's something weird happening. So do, you know, again, if you're not on the utility listserv, um, you know, I hope you all will sign up uh, so you can tell us about what you're seeing and we can troubleshoot issues with you and then use that in our advocacy with DHS. Um, uh, with the new federal, uh, with the, or with the LIHEAP money, and this, this happens every year, but LIHEAP spends the funds um, or must spend the funds um, by 2023. Essentially, LIHEAP, um, uh, those extra funds uh, continue. We may have um, uh, a bunch of supplemental programs at the end of the year if the increases in grant amounts um, don't get the money out the door uh, because you know there, there is this trend, and I'll say across the nation with LIHEAP, that applications not only are is there problems with rejection rates in Pennsylvania, but LIHEAP applications overall have declined in recent years. Um, and it's kind of been a slow and steady decline. And we're concerned that that has to do more with lack of outreach um, than need, because we certainly see a vast need. And LIHEAP is only funded to cover in a normal year about 20% of the eligible population. So we know there's a lot of people out there that aren't getting connected. And what I would say is if, if you know, you are in a position to uh, get a question put on your intake um, or to do some other thing where you're asking folks about whether or not they have high energy costs, um, it would be a great way to be able to boost the income in the pockets of our clients. Um, so even if they're coming in for a custody issue or a PFA or, you know, some other consumer issue, um, you know, LIHEAP is, is a real way to leverage funds for your clients. Um, uh, again, Lydia and I continue to look at the application rejection rates. One of the things that, that Lydia talked about, the um, uh, household composition form, that is a uh, a big, a big barrier uh, and the income uh, remains a big barrier as well. Documentation issues all around. Um, there are a number of ways to resolve that. We're working on it systemically, but we also, um, you know, those are things you can resolve for your clients. And then if you're seeing patterns of it, let us know, right? If your county assistance office is one that is sending out uh, those household composition forms uh, all the time, uh, you know, based on things that are way in the past for that residence, um, that's something we want to know so that we can get the guidance out to those local county assistance offices uh, to stop doing it. Um, so again, also general program improvements, right? Uh, we want to hear about them. Uh, we want to hear from you. And uh, we hope to have more of you uh, join the utility law group through that listserv um, so we can uh, provide more advocacy. Couple of resources for you. Um, uh, certainly follow us on Facebook if you don't already. Um, we are, Pulp is new to Facebook um, as of a year and a half ago or something, but uh, we do push out now a lot of resources through Facebook. Um, uh, and of course, uh, CLS is old hat at uh, social media, um, but we are new to the game. So follow us and you'll get our resources. Um, 
A couple of other uh, resources to be aware of. There's uh, the, the DHS's LIHEAP page, of course, has some good information on it, as well as hotline assistance. Um, DHS also puts out a LIHEAP handbook, um, which provides kind of the rules for the rules. So um, certainly something to take a look at if you're looking at an appeal. Um, uh, there's a link there, and I also put it in the chat to Pulp's utility resources. So there's some uh, good one-pagers uh, for across the state. We are doing, putting out regional uh, uh, one-pagers as well, that not just on LIHEAP, but also on a whole range of other programs. Um, and those uh, are mostly available in both English and Spanish, so feel free to uh, download those. And as I mentioned earlier, Pulp's uh, annual LIHEAP Advocate Manual, which is not just the rules for the rules, um, but it gives you a roadmap to how to resolve a lot of different common issues. Uh, we will release that October 15th. Um, and so that is coming. Um, who to call? You can always, as an advocate, reach out to Pulp at our, our main address, our main um, email address, uh, the pulp at, uh, and that actually needs to be updated. We just changed our email address to pulp at PAUtilityLawProject.org, though if you email our old email address, it's still going to come through. Um, uh, if you have a client uh, that you can't help, um, and they have an emergency, you can send them to our hotline, though, um, you know, we do encourage local programs uh, to take these cases. They are easy to resolve um, and can really help uh, move clients along. And of course, if our utility hotline gets uh, too overwhelmed, we certainly don't have the resources to serve everybody in Pennsylvania. So, um, uh, but a couple places to look for help there. Um, we do have a number of other upcoming web Webinars I want to tell you about. Um, there's our annual LIHEAP program review. For those of you on this webinar, I don't know if that will be so helpful. It'll be a lot of the same information just without the advocacy tips. This is a webinar we give every year for the entire utility community. There's a lot of utilities that attend. There's uh, regulators that attend, policymakers, legislators. So, um, But uh, certainly, if you have community uh, contacts that you want to know more about LIHEAP, uh, you know, community groups you work with do send along uh, the registration. We welcome all to that webinar. And we will be having two webinars in November um, to talk about the Low Income Household Water Assistance Program, or LIWAP, um, uh, which is a brand new program funded through the uh, American Rescue Plan um, and will provide uh, similar assistance to LIHEAP, but on the water side. So uh, we'll be doing a, a webinar for utility providers and for social and legal services. Um, so look for that uh, registration information. Of course, we provided the links ahead of time so you can uh, register now with that link um, if you go into the PowerPoint. Um, so we've got about eight minutes left, um, which is wonderful. Um, and here I thought we were going to be way short on time. Um, but do, do folks have questions about, about LIHEAP, about other utility issues? We're happy to answer them. And I don't see any in the chat. While we're waiting for any possible questions, I'm going to go ahead and launch the second CLE poll box. This will be up for two minutes. Attorneys, please respond for uh, CLE credit. Thanks. 
and I'll give it a minute to see if folks want to type into the chat. I can certainly give some other updates. I know we we all want our CLEs, so we aren't going to wrap up uh, too early here. I think we've got a five minute leeway, um, but we do have a couple more minutes um, in order for everybody to get their credits. Um, so while we're waiting for uh, questions to come in, I, I will mention that um, uh, the uh, ERAP, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, and the Homeowners Assistance Fund Program. Um, the Homeowners Assistance Fund Program has not launched yet, um, but it does, at least in the state plan, include utility relief for homeowners. Um, there will be some requirement that folks first apply for other available utility assistance. So for that program, it'll be very good for you to have a working knowledge of the other utility assistance um, that's available. Available. And then, of course, uh, for those of you who've worked with the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, for renters who have gotten behind on their utility debt, it's been um, uh, integral to stopping uh, what we were afraid would be a landslide of utility terminations um, after the moratorium was lifted April 1st of this year. Um, so I will say that if you are running into problems, and we have had a number of problems crop up across Across the state on uh, the application of ERAP funds to utility debt. So some of the common issues are that people are uh, getting ERAP assistance only for uh, the one month bill that they're past due if they've entered a payment arrangement, for instance. So, um, you know, that that's something that shouldn't be happening. Uh, they should, if you apply for ERAP, you should be able to get your full debt paid back to March 2020, at least 12 months of that debt. Um, and so, you know, if you are running into that in your county where people who entered a payment arrangement for the debt are only getting, you know, one month of ERAP assistance for the utilities. Um, that's something we want to know about. Certainly, if you can resolve the debt through ERAP and then have them apply for LIHEAP after, um, they will be able to get that LIHEAP grant to pay for their uh, future bills, not past bills. Um, so just a bit more information there. I would encourage you all to attend our other uh, utility sessions through the plan conference. Um, and I Lydia, I haven't seen any questions come through. So, um, oh, here's one. For ERAP, have you seen one utility paid but not the other? A client with PGW arrears and PICO arrears. PICO was paid, uh, but we requested both. Um, and Lydia, can you speak to this in Philadelphia? And then I'll. So, we have been seeing one issue with PGW. I don't know if your person was off for PGW. But, um, and I don't know, sort of not off. Okay. So um, we have been seeing some issues where PGW's system isn't able to like automate the amount owed for the arrears. Um, and typically that's been when somebody's off and there's some other fees associated and we've had to have the client call directly PGW to get the amount um, of the amount needed to resolve uh, for arrears. Um, and did this happen recently? Like, was it like a recent payment to Pico, but like PGW didn't get paid or was this a while ago? Cause the other is okay. Well, I mean, generally PGW has just not been as good as Pico about getting the money. And so it may be an issue where 
PGW didn't communicate back with PHTC in Philadelphia. Um, so I'm happy to talk with you, Caitlin, about sort of strategies for reaching out to PGW um, or PHTC just to make sure that that communication happens. But um, if the utilities get back to them, it, it shouldn't be a problem. Um, and there may be a situation where the PGW bill is really, really high and um, they're not gonna accept the grant. That's the only other situation I can think about. Um, so it, it may depend. And I'll just say for the rest of the state, there was some, some counties, uh, one or two early on, who had established their own rule uh, that they would only pay for one utility. Um, I do see that somebody from LASP is on, on the call uh, that we worked on this with um, uh, essentially direct grant counties that received funds directly from the federal government have been very difficult to work with uh, if they've wanted to establish their own restrictive rules. Um, but as some of those counties begin to use DHS issued funds, so with ERAP, some of the funds filtered down to the counties through the federal government, some of the funds filtered down to the counties uh, through DHS um, as a, an allocation. Um, when they are spending their DHS funds, they have to comply with DHS's rules for ERAP, and that would not allow them to be able to issue multiple grants. For Philadelphia, other large counties, um, uh, that can be difficult if they're still spending money that was given to them by the Treasury, so they have a little bit more control over what kinds of program rules they can put in place. Um, but if you see that in your counties outside of Philadelphia, uh, do let us know and we'll try to work with DHS to resolve it. Um, I know one of the other big issues out there is that there's supposed to be notice of appeal given to absolutely everybody applying for ERAP. Um, I have yet to see, um, you know, a good notice of appeal going out in any of the counties. Um, so it may be uh, a piece, and actually it recently came up so hard in one county that we considered possible appeals. So if folks are interested in uh, looking at that um, as a due process, process issue. Um, let's talk about it offline. Um, with that, I, I know that we've more than met our CLE time, um, and I don't see any other questions, uh, but I do encourage you all to reach out to Lydia and I and others um, at Pulp and in CLS's energy unit with your uh, utility-related questions, um, and uh, thank you all for your time. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Lydia, so much for being here with us and sharing all this information. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and hope to see you at the next session. Everybody have a good day. Bye.